Hello and welcome to another episode of the Album Years podcast with myself, Stephen Wilson, and my co-presenter, Mr. Timothy Bones. Hello. People hopefully by now know the drill here. We talk each episode, we talk about a particular year in the history of the classic album. And we figure the classic album era runs from roughly the mid-60s to the end of the millennium. So we're talking about a period of about 35 years. Now, when we first decided we were going to do this, this podcast, we kind of pretty much randomly selected three years, didn't we? One from the 70s, one from the 80s, yeah. one from the 90s. And for whatever reason, I can't remember, we came up with 1992, didn't we? We did. It was, it was entirely random. We, we pretty much threw a dart at a dartboard, didn't we, when we came up with this yeah. year? And it, that was before we realised how... Well, in, certainly in terms of our own tastes, I, I hesitate to add. There's probably some great albums from this year that other people love. But as far as we're concerned... We discovered there wasn't a lot in our collections from this year, was there, when we sort of looked into it? Well, there wasn't. I mean, the previous years that we've dealt with, 1973 and 1980, I really did have well over 100 albums from each of those years. And we could have discussed so many. You know, every time we do one of these shows, I think, my God, so many albums that both of us liked that were released at that point. And um, 1991, I've got a tremendous number of albums. 1993, equally, I've got a lot of albums. 1992, for whatever reason... It's a wilderness. And even the artists that we like are producing what we might consider to be mediocre or weaker albums. So, so, but we decided we'd stick with the plan, didn't we? Because we thought maybe it would be interesting, because we're three podcasts in now. We thought maybe it'd be interesting to talk about a year where perhaps there wasn't a lot of stuff that was kind of resonating with us. Maybe we'd... Well, it's what, what can we do? With the sound and look of tumbleweed. I think well, exactly. Well, I, yes, exactly. Either we're going to make this into an interesting discussion or we're going to end up with a 10 minute podcast where we have nothing to say. But w- why is that? I mean, yeah. what, what is it about 1992? What's going on in 1992? Is, I guess it's the kind of peak of, of, of American rock and American grunge music, isn't it? Which is something that doesn't really appeal. I guess it never really appealed to either of us very much, did it? So maybe that's. Maybe that's one of the reasons. But then that wouldn't explain why 91 and 93, there, were, there was lots of records. I don't know. What's your theory? Absolutely. Tim? I mean, part of my theory is that it was one of the first years where the CD had really kicked in. And I think that new formats often dictate music itself. So, you know, to a certain extent, the LP format dictated the nature of the album. This is why you got themed albums by the likes of Frank Sinatra and Miles Davis in the 50s. And I think the CD had really kicked in as a major seller at this stage and artists were working to the CD. So I actually did um, my statistical bit here and I took down the length of the album. You're so, you such know, a, good a example. nerd. You are such a nerd. I thought I was a nerd. Thank you. So I did. I, I, I took down the length of the album and it, and it sort of, with one exception, backed up my theory. You know, a good example being one of my favourite bands during this time, American Music Club. Their 1991 album, 37 minutes long, Everclear. Beautiful piece of work, great dynamic range. 1993 album, arguably just as good, but a little tiring. Too about long. 53 minutes, yeah. yeah. The album after that, 64 minutes. We mentioned Nico in the last podcast, and if you can imagine 80 minutes of undiluted Nico. Yeah, we're driving mad. I mean, this is yeah. when I might actually believe that yeah. suicide is possible. <laughs> For me. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, so let's start. Let's talk about the first album. Now, I'm looking at the pile here and I'm thinking that is that's not that's a pretty uh, 
meager, meager pickings in terms of what I've taken from my own collection that is on the list. And there are a few things on the list that I don't have, that things you've picked. I don't have them at all, so you're going to have to talk about those. But I'll pick one now that I do have in my collection. And I think this is a great example of exactly what you're talking about. It's because for me, it's a potentially great album, but it's far too long. Um, and it's by an artist that obviously had been around for a while by this point. And this is Roger Waters, Amused to Death. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. Roger Waters, uh, originally a Pink Floyd fame. And this is his third album. And he, he wasn't exactly churning them out. I mean, I think his first solo album proper had been about 10 years before. And he'd only made three. And I think after this one, there was about a gap of about 25 years or something. Anyway, mm-hmm. so this is um, Amused to Death. And, um, okay, you could say, well... Pink Floyd's The Wall is a great album and it's, 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 you know, it's 80 minutes long. But I think there's a difference there is you have the, the kind of yin and yang. You have the melodicism of a Gilmore alongside that kind of biting, uh, you know, lyrical wit of Roger Waters. Mm. Um, and the two kind of balance each other out. Now, here you've just got Roger Waters basically complaining about the state of the world for close to 80 minutes. And I just, I just can't get through it. I, I, exactly. I mean, I think when it works, it's one of Waters' best albums ever. I think some of it's incredibly touching. It's very creative sonically. Well, it's produced by Pat Leonard, who I think, I believe at that time, was most famous for working with, you know, more mainstream pop artists like Madonna. Well, Madonna, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think he was a big Floyd fan. He'd always, you know, dreamt of, of producing, uh, you know, Floyd. And Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds great. Um, it it's, does undoubtedly a very strong Roger Waters album. But I think, yeah, it's it's just far too repetitive, far too long. I mean, I'd put Final Cut as one of my favourite Roger Waters, Pink Floyd-related albums. And, and once more, you know, that is about 42 minutes long. It's a perfect balance. I think certain music, um, there's a level of intensity that just cannot work over that time frame. And we found this, I think, with some of our music as well, and certainly my solo albums, every single one of them, has been between 38 and 44 minutes long because even for me, you know, I'm reaching the knife at the end if I take it beyond 44 minutes. I, I admire you for that because most of my albums, I have to admit, are too long. Um, and uh, and I battle against my own instincts. You know, when you've got a, when you've got a body of work that you're very proud of, you almost like want to you don't want to you don't want to cut anything out. But I'm beginning to realise more and more now that, that there is something about overlong albums. It doesn't matter how good the music is. It doesn't matter how engaging it is. There is a point at which people will begin to lose focus and lose concentration. All but the most hardcore fans are going to... Their attention is, begin, is going to begin to wane. And it's around about the 40-minute mark. And I think there's no coincidence that most of the classic albums are in that kind of time, you know, ballpark. Absolutely. Almost all of them are 35 to 40 minutes long. And I think... One thing to say here is that you talk about the White Album or you talk about Pink Floyd's The Wall and everybody has an opinion as to what would make those albums more focused, mm. more effective. Mm. Whereas when you're talking about something like Revolver or Sgt. Pepper's, very few people actually will take songs off or think, OK, it would be much stronger without yeah. this. Yeah. Whereas the White Album is constantly up for debate in that respect as is the wall now but that but that's interesting also because something i touched on is that the the wall the difference in the wall and indeed the final cut is you do still have the presence of david gilmore so let's so let's just briefly address the million dollar question which comes up time and time again with post waters floyd and and indeed comes up time and time again with post beatles mccartney and lennon is 
There is an element, a strong argument, isn't there, to say that these two individuals, Gilmore and Waters, and in the case of Beatles, McCartney and Lennon, were much stronger together than they were apart because they created that light and shade that kept you listening. So in the case of Waters, it's the, it's the over-reliance on the lyrics and the bile just becomes wearing after a while, doesn't it? And in the case of Gilmore, conceptually, he doesn't have the strength of a Waters. So some of his stuff can come across as a little bit kind of anodyne, can't it? Um, mm. You know, with that. And the two of them together just produced incredible music, even on the final cut, which is very dominated by Waters. You have mm. some of the most sublime Gilmore guitar solos, I think, that he ever committed to a, a Floyd record, even at that uh, stage. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's something that both of us have discussed over the years. And for me, Gilmore sweetens what Waters does. Waters yes. gives Gilmore a greater sense of depth and focus. So let's move on to another record that I think in many ways, I'm sorry to start off with in such a negative, you know, I, I wasn't completely negative about the Waters album. I do like that. But but this is an album, this is an album I want to talk about now that I don't have much to say about positive, really. Um, it's an artist I'm a massive fan of. And so in a sense, it is symptomatic of, of 1992. Uh, it, again, it's, it is too long, um, but it's also a bit bland by his standards. And I'm talking about Peter Gabriel's album from this year, uh, Us, which I suppose also suffered, um, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the sort of, this is the proper follow-up to So, isn't it? Which was a massive mm. mainstream, you know, commercial success. So this, I guess, also suffers a little bit from being the belated follow-up to a massively successful, commercially viable uh, experimental art rock pop record. Sell this record to me, Tim. I think you're a bigger fan of this record than I am. I, I'm not a fan. You know, once more, it does suffer. As we said, it's 50. Let me look at this one now. I've got my little chart up. It is um, 58 minutes long. And I think it's probably 10 to 13 minutes too long. I think that judiciously edited, this could be one of the best Peter Gabriel albums. I really? think that it is. I think it's quite a strong follow-up to So. I just don't think it's quite as disciplined um as i say i probably haven't listened to it as much as you over the years but nothing has stuck in my mind at all from this record uh i, I, I vaguely remember the singles which i'm not a fan of kiss that frog and so i'm not sure that i can agree with you there uh, but anyway carry on yeah i'm actually getting it up on my computer now so you can't remember any of the songs <laughs> either can you without looking okay give me yeah give me a song give me a song without well, looking you've looked now haven't well you? steam i just said that but, one yeah, Steam is interesting because Steam, actually, there was a better version of it. He did two versions of Yeah, it's of called Sledgehammer. One was B-side, Quiet Steam. You've probably not heard this. I haven't. Um, it's one of the B-sides from this period, which is a fantastic piece of work. And it's um, far closer to an updated Gabriel 3 or Gabriel 4. So he did two versions. I, you look, Love to be Loved is great. Washing of the Waters, one of his best gospel ballads. Is it? Um I think Secret World, the closing track, is incredibly affecting. I mean, one argument I would have with Peter Gable, which you'd probably disagree with, is that he's never made a bad album. You know, this may be his True. worst album. True. But it's actually still consistently interesting. Um, and I also think it was perhaps too dense a production. I think at this stage he had his new studio and it was a bit like... I've got 190, 199 tracks, and I'm going to use every single yeah, but, one of them. Yeah, yes, but you could you could you could level the same uh, uh, accusation at Up, uh, which is another album that's very very 
overproduced, some might say overwrought, but I love that record because I think the material is much stronger. And I think, so I would kind of agree with you. I think there are two problems with this album. Firstly, the length, but the second problem, I say again, is that it suffers badly from being clearly an attempt to recreate the, mag- the, the commercial magic and appeal of So. And I think by the time you get to the next album up, he's kind of, in a way, because us wasn't a big success he's kind of gone back into his peter gabriel world where he's like Mm. you know what i don't want to be a pop star anyway i'm just going to make an amazing record again and i think this album does suffer well i think this also had the misfortune of coming after passion which i think is one of gabriel's most underrated love that record yeah love it very inventive production and i think it suggested for people like us that he was going to pursue that direction with more of a vocal orientation so there was a slight disappointment but i still feel it's um a heartfelt album lyrically. There are some wonderful vocal performances. Um, yeah. As always, interesting guests. Yes, and I, and I think, I mean, I am playing devil's advocate here. And the, the big caveat here for me is, of course, I'm a massive Gabriel fan, so it's all relative. And so when I look at his catalogue, it's, it's, you know, it's a consistent string of incredible records, masterpieces, I would say. Passion is a masterpiece. So mm. is a masterpiece in its own way. Three and four are masterpieces. Up, I think, is a masterpiece. So this kind of pales... It, so it's all relative. It pales in comparison for me. But you're probably right. It has it has its strengths too. Yeah. Shall we move on to a record that we actually do like? Yeah, well, that we both agree that we love. Now, so 1992 wasn't a complete washout uh, because the first album by a band that I know means a lot to both of us. Uh, came out this year, August 1992. It's even written on the sleeve. First edition, August 1992. And we're talking about Red House Painters, first album, Down Colourful Hill, uh, which to me uh, is still one of the most incredible discoveries of my entire music-loving life was hearing this band for the first time. And I think I was probably in 1992, I was probably a bit bored with, you know, music coming from America, the kind of grunge bands. I wasn't really into it. It all seemed very meat and potatoes. To me, it all seemed like just going back to sort of heavy rock cliches. Uh, Okay, so they didn't play guitar solos, but it was still quite boring, you know, three chord riff based guitar music. And then suddenly this band came out of nowhere, signed to 4AD, and it was one of the most miserable Musics I'd ever heard, and I loved it for it, you know. And absolutely, I connected with so melancholic, so mel- uh, melodramatic, and slow. And it's kind of what we now think of as slow core music. It's like, how slow can the tempos get? Mm. But with this incredible um, singer songwriter, Mark Koshalek, I don't know how you still to this day don't really know how you say his <laughs> name, Mark Koshalek. Um, this incredibly strong personality that just seemed to be on the verge of slitting his wrists at every moment. But here we have, you know, some of the most beautifully affecting music, I think, of the decade, certainly in pieces like Medicine Bottle. Well, I think we both, yeah, we both fell in love with it. And yeah. I don't think you remember how we came across this. It was, um, it was Derek at One Little Indian. It was when we were signed to One Little Indian in the early days. And he threw this across the table when we were having a meeting. And it was along the lines of, this is miserable shit. You two will love it. And he was right. He was and right. I adored it. And this was before yeah. the album came out. So we heard this before the album came out and immediately fell in love with it. And um, it, it's interesting over the years because you learn more about the story. But this seemed to come out of nowhere. I remember my initial um, feeling was that this had almost come out of Morrissey and the Smiths. It was a kind of 
epic, slightly classic rock influenced American version of the Smiths to an extent. My my first ever impressions, but but with the tempo, um, but with the tempos about a quarter of what they would be on a Smiths record. I mean, that's, indeed, yeah, because that, 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 that's the thing about Red Hot's Painters, isn't it? They'll take ten minutes to play a song that most other bands would play in two, because the tempo and the pace of it is like snail pace, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was it was a Smiths forty five on thirty three. On six, it was a Smiths seventy eight <laughs> on sixteen. Conceivably, um, and yeah, I think it was something that it immediately had um, a big impact, and partly it's because it was such an emotional piece of work and an honest piece of work. And I think that we'd come out of the eighties where affectation was far more prevalent, and this seemed searingly honest in a way that. If, again, we take the Smiths as being a reference point here, the Smiths always had an archness. This didn't. This was defences down. Mm. And musically, it just allowed the songs to go wherever they wanted. So quite often you would have 12-minute pieces that went from whisper to a scream, but in a non-clichéd way. You know, as you've said, the grunge movement, whenever they did the whisper to scream Nirvana, you'd heard it before in well, you'd heard Pixies. it in the Pixies, yeah. I was about to say, you'd heard it before in the Pixies, yeah. and Tin Machine. No. You know, arguably there, David Bowie's <laughs> Tin Machine, the most influential album of the 1990s. You know, 1989, Tin Machine comes out. 92, Nirvana, take the Tin Machine blueprint, dominate the world. Poor old David Bowie. Right, well, you're kind of rewriting history there, because as we all know, Tin Machine was a piss-poor, pale imitation of the Pixies itself. But listen, anyway, <laughs> and I speak as a big Bowie fan myself, but I, I have to be honest, Tin Machine was, well... Anyway, so listen. Well, it's also interesting, isn't it, that because you talked about Kozilek having this kind of uh, fascination for uh, for things like progressive rock, and it, you know, you you only have to look at the songs he covered over the years. He also was a massive fan of very middle of the road. Some might say schmaltzy pop. He did an album of John Denver covers. He covered silly mm. love songs by Wings on on the last. Uh, or the last but one Red House Painters album, I think. We talked about this in mm. some of the previous episodes. People who don't give a shit about looking cool, you know, this is what I like. I'm not ashamed to say I love this, uh, and this is going to come through in my own music, and it's going to come through in the music I choose to cover and the, the music I choose to enthuse about. And I think we both, maybe we both subconsciously kind of understood that early on about him mm. and it kind of made us feel even closer to the music this guy wasn't afraid of unfashionable reference points because we never were either i mean when we were when we were starting as no man we were listening to donovan you know mm. we couldn't care less about bob dylan you know we loved bob <laughs> we loved donovan didn't we he was so uncool it was unbelievable this is before the happy mondays kind of you know slightly made him cool again anyway let's move on um Another record, another artist that we, we had discovered a little bit earlier, and, and you introduced me to this artist a few years earlier uh, with an album, he, I think his second album, uh, The Tender Perver, and I'm talking about Momus. Um, and he was pretty much in a, in a period where he was, making, he was knocking out an album a year at this point. So, and I th I'm sure you'd agree with me, you know, Momus for about seven or eight albums in a row didn't really put a foot wrong as far as we're concerned, did he? Uh, and his album from this year is an album called Voyager which I think is one of his, one of his stronger records, actually. Um, but the, those albums he made for Creation Records between, when was it, 86, 87, The Tender mm -hmm. Pervert? Uh, and then the, the album following this, Time Lord, which was his first for, for Creation. I, I will take them to the grave with me. I, th I still think these are some of the most, again, distinctive singer-songwriter records, but in a way, 
that couldn't be more different to, to Mark Koscielek. This is a guy that's very playful, very funny. He's a perv, isn't he? Let's face it. He's mm. a bit of a perv. Um, there's that, I still love that sequence of albums, a uh, s- sequence of songs on the Don't Stop the Night, the second side of Don't Stop the Night, where there's a song about female masturbation, followed by a song about paedophilia, followed by a song about necrophilia. Uh, <laughs> but he manages to get away with it, doesn't he? So Voyager, Tim, Momus' album from this year. Tell us about Momus, because a lot of people won't probably won't know Momus. Well, Momus is one of those artists I was kind of lucky to discover because um, his first EP, the one, the Burrell EP, was about 20 pence in Piccadilly Records in Manchester. Not his first I... EP, Schoolboy Error, Beast <sighs> With Two Backs. Beast With Two I Backs. Apologize. Is... I apologise, I apologise. It was 25 pence. That doesn't excuse the error. Up. <laughs> I fell in love with it. And um, I think, again, at a time when Artifice was prevalent he had this incredibly natural voice Momus reminded me of Donovan it was almost Mm. like an intellectually charged Donovan who'd actually spent too much time reading John Updike had been releasing records well he he definitely refers to himself as an intellectual doesn't he I mean and you know again going back to the the literary thing with Mark Koshalek there's so many references isn't there to literature in in Momus what I, I think what I love about the run of creation records is he is also trying to be a pop star as well, isn't he? Mm. And there's, there's almost a sense that, that I think there was a description of him around the time of, of his classic single, Hairstyle of the Devil. He's like the intellectual version of the Pet Shop Boys. You know, there yeah. almost seemed like a moment, didn't there, where Momus was going to cross over, you know, with, sure, with, yeah. with Hairstyle of the Devil. That's such a classic single. If you don't know that single, go and listen to Hairstyle of the Devil. It is like a pervy intellectual version of the Pet Shop Boys. I don't know how else to put it. Well, I think he came out of a singer-songwriter tradition, and I think in some ways... It was folk music, folk music in the purest sense, in that he was using what was the folk music of the day, which was electropop. Kind of see him as a Paul Simon figure or a Donovan figure, but adapting to the era in which he was, you know, using the pop vocabulary of the time. So a lot of his albums do have his creation work anyway, has a kind of New Order, um, Pet Shop Boys quality Mm. but he's bringing something very very different to them and i think that the argument is that if you were a singer-songwriter or a folk artist of any day you use the popular medium of your day so i kind of see him as a latter-day folk artist in that he's using what was the sort of appropriate pop language he could work within we've always been big fans of moments myself and tim uh uh, very very underrated so i I wanted to talk we we kind of already touched on this when we talked about um uh roger waters and peter gabriel but this seems to be a year and i think you alluded to this in in in, the beginning of the show there's a year here where a lot of artists that we really hold very dear were producing perhaps not their best work so um you know, I mean, I'm looking at our list here. We've got Brian Eno uh, produced an album called The Shoot Off Assembly. You kind of feel like you've been here before with, with that record, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, other artists, Leonard Cohen's The Future. Lou Reed, Magic and Loss. It isn't bad, but it, but again, I've got the lengths here. The Future, 60 minutes long. Um, Lou Reed, 59 minutes long. One of the odd exceptions to this is an album we weren't very keen on because I know that we loved his predecessor, which was Kill Uncle. And that yeah. was Morrissey. Yeah. And of course, he gets in the studio with Mick Ronson and you expect something quite special. But for me, it was a Morrissey album. It was now, Morrissey isn't, going... Th- isn't that odd? Because, because that album, Your Arsenal, is considered by most Morrissey fans to be one of his better records. Whereas Kill Uncle, the album we both loved, 
the previous mm. year, is considered to be the absolute low point of his catalogue. It's the uh, Nadir. And, and I, I love Kill Uncle, which is, I think, about 31 minutes long, if I'm not mm. mistaken. Uh, and, and I love the fact that, that uh, Kill Uncle was a much more playful record. Um, the arrangements were much more uh, unexpected. Um, and here we had Morrissey, as you say, doing a pretty much boring, to me, a very boring guitar, bass and drums album. Uh, who else have we got producing run-of-the-mill albums this year? Or in, This is all obviously just in our opinion, but uh, albums that perhaps were by artists that we love that didn't produce their best work. Well, well the Tom Waits... Cure. Okay, Cure. You're going to run into The Cure. What was the album this year? It was Wish. Was I, know, it? I was going to say that I wasn't going to go on to The Cure. I was going to say you said who's producing run-of-the-mill albums. And for me, The Cure's Wish, again, 63 minutes long. Too long. It's not a good follow-up to what was one of their greatest albums, Disintegration. There's some wonderful material on it, actually. But again, make it 40 minutes, take the better material, you've got a good Cure pop album. I, I don't, personally, I don't ever want to hear Friday I'm In Love ever again as long as I live. It's one of those, mo- it's one of those songs like Walking on Sunshine that instantly comes on any movie, any rom-com where they've just fallen in love, they've just met, they're walking on sunshine, it's Friday, they're in love. I don't want to hear even that if song. Even if it's a Sunday, it's Friday, I'm in love. Yeah, it? Don't Stop Me Now, another one, classic song. Don't want to hear it ever again as long as I live. But I was going to talk about Tom Waits' Bone Machine. Actually, I do think it's a, a really good record. Now, you've made the point that, this is interesting, you've made the point to me in the past that this is the record that you concede is really good, but it's also the point at which you fall out of love with Tom Waits. And I can, I, I can kind of understand why, because there is a sense that this is the archetype for everything that people think Tom Waits' records sound like. It's almost mm. like this is the point at which he becomes a parody of himself. Um, the kind of trash can percussion the grizzled voice, uh, the kind of blues licks uh, recorded like they sounded, they recorded in a barn, uh, you know. And this is, I think, is a great record, but I can also concede that this is the one where perhaps he kind of began to imitate himself. It definitely is. I mean, I, I fell in love with him on Swordfish Trombones. A masterpiece. I still think it's masterpiece. a great album. Yeah. Tremendous light yeah. and shade in that record. Yeah. And um, going back, there are albums like Blue Valentine, which meant a lot. And, and Rain Dogs was a superb Heart of Saturday Night, Masterpiece, Small Change, Masterpiece. I think the problem with Bone Machine is it's a bit charmless. It's a bit of a racket. Um, the, the thing with Waits is that it's a persona. He's an actor. And at this stage, I think also he was becoming quite well known uh, with cameo appearances in films as well. I could see through this persona this was always a persona you know he was always playing the hobo you know this is somebody who'd led quite a charmed hollywood life with his uh wife being a screenwriter for a number of major directors and so on and i think that there's something about his reveling in low life in a way that sounds as if it's you know stealing from a steinbeck novel from the 30s rather than lived experience and i don't know why it's just this album was a tipping point for me that Whereas I could take all of that on Blue Valentine, I could take it on Swordfish Trombones. This tested my patience to the point where I questioned my love of Waits' work overall. See, this has always been a trait of yours. And I've, there's certain artists where one album 
I don't have this, but you seem to have this. One album can turn you off, can make you fall out of love. I remember you selling me your whole Marvin Gaye. You know, very early on, you had all these Marvin Gaye albums and, and you sold them all to me for like next to nothing because you, I think you'd heard one record that you that made you question your love of Marvin Gaye. So you got rid of all your Marvin Gaye. I'm like, really? What's going on? Let's get it on. Um, and I, I never quite understood that about you. I mean, I still hold the top, the run of Tom Waits albums from his debut closing time, probably through to Bone Machine as one of the most flawless, uh, you know, continuums of extraordinary music ever produced by anyone with Heart Saturday Night and Swordfish Trombones right up there amongst my favorite albums of all time. But you say you, you don't listen to Tom Waits anymore. Is that what you're saying? Because almost because of this. I can still listen to Swordfish Trombones occasionally and the title track of Blue Valentine, but I find it difficult because in my mind it's somebody faking. It's an actor going but I mean, through the motions. Okay, but would you look at an actor? Like, let's say you know Robert De Niro. I mean, Robert De Niro uh, is is kind of an actor who's made his career by basically playing variation uh, this is this is a generalization but let's just say for the sake of argument he's made his career playing variations of the same kind of character now that may well not be him at all but that doesn't mean he's not a great actor i mean some of his you know performances are amazing um absolutely but so why why is that okay with a real actor quote unquote but it's not okay with a with a with a musical voice like tom waits for example Well, I think sometimes even with real actors, real directors, once the veil's taken away, it becomes difficult to take them quite as seriously in the role. It's just when you have that little ray of insincerity. Makes you question everything. Okay, It makes you question. Let's move on now to a a band that... um, Never made a bad record as far as I'm concerned. Uh, You know, again, another band that for me rarely made anything less than, if not a masterpiece, a very, very, very good record. And I think this record they made this year kind of falls into that category. I don't think it's their master, one of their masterpieces, but I think it is a very, very, very good record indeed. Um, and it is XTC, uh, one of the greatest bands of all time, as we all know, I'm sure, listening out there, folks, I'm sure you all agree with us on that. Uh, one of the greatest bands of all time, also one of the most underrated bands of all time. And probably 1992 was another time they released an album to the sound of Indifference, uh, which seems to have been a constant throughout most of their career, although many of their albums have been you know, subsequently discovered uh, and rediscovered by, by subsequent generations of music lovers. And I think they are appreciated now as one of the greats. Now, their album from this year, Non Such... Um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Again, I don't think it's one of uh, of their very strongest, but it is a brilliant record. Uh, Tim, non-such XTC. I mean, I'd agree with everything you say there. I think it's a great album, but it lacks the focus of their greatest albums. Yes. And partly that is to do with the length of it. You know, so there's, there's quite a lot in there that I think is really quite interesting. And actually, there's, there's one piece there that you may or may not agree with me on, that whenever I heard it, there were a couple of tracks in this era where I think they've had some kind of profound impact on your songwriting, yet are never particularly discussed. One of them, I think, is when I listened to um, Tears for Fears around this era, Raoul and the Kings of Spain, there are certain chord sequences that I associate with you as much as anything else, as if they've almost dug deep into you. And one with this is The Smartest Monkeys, which is a Colin Moulding track. And when I hear that, I can hear certainly some of your porcupine tree writing in it. 
this is probably something that shouldn't be on the podcast, but that's just a question. No, no, why not? It's just no, a, it was an not? accidental. No, why not? I mean, you know, I think I think we're we're talking about this music from a very personal perspective yeah. and by the way folks this obviously goes without saying this is just our opinions and i'm sure many people will will love some of these albums that we're not so hot on and, and vice versa maybe, maybe not be interested in some of these albums that we're waxing lyrical about but i mean you're absolutely right i, I think um xtc have been one of my definitely one of my biggest influences i think for me in many ways they have been my beatles because i was mm. never you know, I was never a member of the Beatles congregation, you know, the worshipping the Beatles. I guess I was from a different generation. Um, I wanted I wanted to find my bands, you know, um, that I could be excited about. And there is so much that the Beatles and XTC have in common uh, without, you know, without XTC being derivative of the Beatles, unless it's in a very knowing way through, obviously, through the, the Dukes of Stratosphere. But XTC just have written this body of work which stands up there with, I think, any body of work, the Beatles included, in terms of its diversity, its musicality, its smart music. Every song kind of has its own little musical universe. And that's something I love about XTC. You know, there are many, there are many artists where... Um, they kind of have a they kind of have a sound. So every song that they write inhabits the same kind of musical universe, and that can be the kind of sounds they use. And here's a band where it's almost like okay, every song we're going to create a whole different musical universe for, and that of course is that's the Beatles thing. That's mm. what the Beatles did. Every song they wrote is like we're going to create a whole different musical world here for it. Going back to the beginning of the program, what XTC have. What Steely Dan have, what Pink Floyd have, what the Beatles had is the songwriter that has that slightly more acidic, bitter quality. And in this case, it's Andy Partridge Mm. and the songwriter that has this incredibly sweet sense of melody, which obviously in the Beatles, McCartney, Floyd, Gilmore. And in this case, Moulding. And I think that it was one of the things that made XTC work very well. Although I'd kind of argue that one of the things that's interesting about XTC is that as the band went on, Andy's melodic gift became greater. His voice became sweeter. I was just about to say uh, a bit. I mean, a bit like the Beatles. It's it's oversimplification, isn't it, to say that? Because of yeah. course, McCartney produced some quite biting material, and Lennon produced some, you know, some argu- some quite mawkish material. I'm not a fan yeah. of Imagine, for example. I, I think it's one of the cheesiest, mawkiest songs ever written. And here on this album, Andy, uh, Humble Daisy. Uh, wrapped in grey rook these are some of the most beautiful songs in the mm. xtc catalog uh, well, i think by apple venus he's completely got that down you know for me apple venus yeah. has the sweetness of Joni mitchell brian wilson judy sill absolutely um so uh, there we go xtc you know i think it's one of those things with almost xtc you almost begin to take them for granted because every album it is great. Uh, and maybe there was an element of that with this album that is just, oh, it's another great XTC album. Yeah, okay, that is its flaw. Basically, I think actually I might even prefer it to Oranges and Lemons, but it doesn't have as strong a visual identity as Oranges and Lemons and it doesn't have as strong a focus as Skylarking, Oranges and Lemons, English Settlement. Apple Venus seemed more like, more like a development, didn't it? It's like, oh, this is XTC, 
but it's something new. Whereas I think Nonsuch yeah. felt in a way at the time, I remember buying it and feeling like this is a great album, but it feels like, oh yes, it's like Oranges and Lemons. It's the next yeah. record after Oranges and Lemons. But it's an out, but you know, the beautiful thing about albums like that sometimes is they just stay with you for years and years and years. And you go back to them and you're like surprised, constantly surprised. I mean, I remixed this album. And again, when I was remixing mm. it, it was such a joy because I was like, oh yeah, that is a great song. And then the next song, mm. oh yeah, that's also a great song. And just, wow, this album is just full of great songs, but I kind of took it for granted as part of the continuum of their work in a way. I think it's part of the continuum, but also isn't it where it actually fell that to a certain extent that they picked up momentum, especially in America throughout the 80s and Skylarking and Oranges and Lemons reinforced that. And I think that coming into the 90s, there's something about coming into a new decade that suddenly artists seem old. They're rendered old either by the new movements or by the media um, or even by the releases. And I think there was something actually about us, going back to us and this album, where they were just albums by artists who'd had their day in the sun in the 80s. And somehow, especially the media perspective, in the light of something like grunge and post-Manchester, they seemed out of time. Unless, unless it was someone like Neil Young who actually embraced the kind of grunge sound and made albums with Pearl Jam or Bowie who kind of, you know, well, to less success. Well, Tin Machine obviously defined grunge as we know. Tin Machine or, or Neil Young's Ragged Glory, Tim. Pick one. <laughs> oh, such a hard choice. No, it, is, it really isn't a hard choice, Tim. It really isn't a hard choice. Right, listeners, it really isn't a hard choice. Listen, uh, let's, let's try and talk about a couple more albums. Um, uh, you wanted to talk about um, uh, Robert Wyatt's Don Destan. Is that the album from 92, if I'm not... Yeah, interested? Don Destan. I mean... Uh, is, is this another artist that falls into that category, maybe? It, it falls into that category to an extent in that it's another Robert Wyatt album. I love it. Um, it's not necessarily one of his best, and it's certainly not one of his worst. And in some ways, it kind of carries on from his 80s work. It's... It's a good album. It has a few great tracks like Catholic Architecture. But you wouldn't but you wouldn't pick it as a you wouldn't pick it as one of your Robert Wyatt Desert Island no. discs. You know, whereas the Leonard Cohen album from this year, The Future, sounds like a come down from I'm Your Man. And this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because Leonard Cohen, a bit like Peter Gabriel, probably had his day in the sun in the mid to late eighties with radically fresh music. And I'm Your Man propelled Leonard Cohen to new fame and the same with so and peter gabriel and so to a certain extent us and the future seem like come downs from those great party days of the mid 80s and while robert wyatt didn't have those it just seems like the xtc it's another good their albums their albums that are certainly not going to disappoint the fan base but they're not going to go beyond that fan base are they Absolutely. You know, if you didn't like him before, you're not going to like him now. Um, so it's it's another 1992 album. But I love the fact at this stage that he's still producing what are effectively glorified demos and everything about them is beautifully quirky. There's, I was going to say there's one more album I want to talk about. It's actually a pair of albums. They came out on the same day. They both involve um, the same collective of musicians. Uh, uh, and these are albums in a, in a very different musical genre, but one that I was very, very influenced by, particularly you know, on those early No Man records, uh, particularly things like Wild Opera, which is uh, Meat Beat Manifesto, 
and consolidated. Uh, they're both, I guess, what you would put in the category of um, industrial hip hop in the sense it's hip hop music with uh, a very aggressive uh, but experimental musical bent. Now, Consolidated were, were, I remember being in a shop with you on the day that No Man played in Manchester, late in, in, uh, in 1992. Um, I forget the name of the venue in Manchester. Do you remember what that venue was? PJ Bells. PJ Bells. And I remember going to the local record shop, which would have been Piccadilly Records. It would indeed. But do you not remember? I bought Us on that very same day. Did you? Because I, yeah, I took it back to the hotel room yeah. and Richard Barbieri said, come on, let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Yeah. And I had my portable ghetto blaster with me, put it in. I liked it. I can't quite say what Richard Barbieri said. Well, you can't because he's not here to, to, to say himself. But, but he's not here to defend himself. Not to defend, but, but it wasn't as positive. Wasn't that positive? Well, I, I'm probably with him on that then. But th- this, I remember hearing, coming over the, the shop sound system, I remember hearing this song called Tool and Die, which is basically the first track on the Consolidator I'm playing my music, and it just ripped my head off. I'd never heard anything like it. It had all the aggression and bile and energy of a public enemy or something like that, but it was right on. It, it was. It spoke to me much more as a you know as a middle class white man. These guys were talking about gun control. They were talking about vegetarianism. They were talking about sexual politics. They were talking about gay rights. They were very very politically motivated to the point that half the tracks on this album, Playmore Music, are basically um, them... At their shows, they would open the floor up to their audience Mm -hmm. to get people up on stage to talk about some of these issues. And they would then use the recordings of these kind of interactions with their audience to create tracks out of them, uh, which is fascinating. I have to say, it doesn't bear a lot of repeat listening, that side of the band. But basically, if you like hip-hop in the most aggressive, in-your-face way with really strong uh positive messages behind it this is a band for you consolidated some of the most inventive i mean they're sampling stuff like cabaret voltaire miles davis they're putting it together with hip-hop beats in a way that i personally adore this is an example of a band that you do not try to water down it does not work when you try to water down consolidated but Meat Beat Manifesto is still going strong to this day. Uh, Jack Dangers, actually from Swindon, ironically from the same city as, as XTC. And for Andy Partridge produced. Do you remember that band called Perennial Divide, Tim? Pre-Meat Beat do, Manifesto? Yeah. yeah. So that was the pre-Meat Beat Manifesto vehicle for Jack Dangers. And Andy actually produced one of their early singles. So there's a connection there. Um, this, I have to say, this isn't one of my favourite Meat Beat Manifesto albums, but they're another band that never really made a bad record. Every record is kind of a variation. It's, it's cut from the same cloth, shall we say. Um, so I don't know. I mean, are you familiar with, with these artists that much, Tim? Meat Beat Manifesto, yeah, and I was quite liked. I mean, in some ways, I always saw Meat Beat Manifesto as being an English version of what Nine Inch Nails became. But yes, also. Well, in fact, he did a lot of remixes. He did remixes for Nine Inch Nails, yeah. You can really see the connection. And um, I think it's partly because it contrasts a lot of violence with delicacy, but also it has some kind of root in 80s electropop. It's as if electropop has exploded into industrial music. Also, yeah. Um, and with Consolidated Politically, what you're talking about with the, the veganism and so on obviously reminded me of Skinny Puppy. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, the Me Beat Manifesto album, I liked. And I could see, as I said, connections with Nine Inch Nails. Perhaps they never made 
um, a statement quite as grand as the downward spiral. I think the thing about mm. Reznor is that he always had quite a cinematic conceptual scope. And although the Meat Beat Manifesto albums are equally ambitious in their own way, they don't quite have that overriding theme in terms of the artwork or the concept that you get with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, I can see that. There, I think there was a great, there was a great generation. I think the point is around about this time, there was a great generation for me of um, musicians that had grown up, white guys, essentially, that had grown up listening or being surrounded by you know, things like uh, a public, a public Enemy rather than things like uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And that was coming through in their music. And they'd also explored industrial culture and they'd explored things like Miles Davis and, and the early 70s fusion records. There was a great song that came out around about this time by an artist called MC 900 Foot Jesus called Falling Elevators, which yeah, is yeah. still one of my favourite songs from the whole era. Mm. And again, you know, a young white guy that had grown up with hip hop music and rap music music but also had I'd obviously listened to a lot of a lot of other music too and so it's really interesting to hear the influence that that generation of hip hop music in the from the 80s is beginning to have and you know about this time you also have the first rage against the machine album so that's another really interesting record and i think partly again it's because it has that uh you know th- that sense of something that's come as much from hip hop as it has from led zeppelin I think for me, I was kind of fascinated by the way in which hip hop worked from, as a production tool. Correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly from my point of view, things really gelled when you got to stuff like Portishead and Massive Attacks, Mezzanina. I think that's when that trend really came of age. The white guys that had grown up listening to Public Enemy, but had also grown up listening to John Barry and grown up mm. listening to Pink Floyd and you could hear and all of those things which I liked all of those things which I liked I heard them all coming through in this new form of music yeah. uh, and of course that's still a few years off although Massive Attack had released their first couple of records I think by this time it's pretty, yeah yeah it's Unfinished pretty, Sympathy I this, think it's uh, I mean that's an extra, uh, amazing I still love Unfinished Sympathy but I didn't love their first album and I didn't love their second album but I loved Mezzanine <laughs> Okay, Tim, so let's pick one album from 1992 that we personally hold dearest and let's pick another album that we think maybe points towards the future. You go first. Well, I think the favourite, really the only album that I repeatedly played at the time and still play with enthusiasm is Red House Painters Down Colourful Hill. It's ultimately not my favourite Red House Painters album or my favourite Kozilek album, but that year was was dominated by it because it was it was a fresh singer songwriter voice um that as i've said just seemed extremely open almost to the point of defenselessness that i responded to and an album that you think points to the future an album that points to is the future is there one this maybe is, maybe there isn't one i don't know maybe there isn't one this is you know i'm looking through here and you know maybe consolidated to a certain extent in the sense that consolidated sounds more 2020 than any of the other albums that we're talking about and that's obviously because i suppose hip-hop rap has come to define a lot of contemporary music far more so you know r&b influences over the last sort of six or seven years have dominated um the upper echelons of the charts certainly 
Yeah, and, and, and I, th- I think I would pick exactly the same two albums. I know you're not a fan of the Consolidated album, which, which I genuinely am, but I think you're right. Red House Painter's first album for me is an album I still absolutely adore. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, in terms of pointing to the future, as, as we just discussed, really, you know, the way that you can hear the beginnings of hip-hop culture really beginning to change and mutate British music... Um, and I think also, again, an album, I don't love it, but I can totally see how it did point to the future, is the, the Rage Against the Machine debut album, which was this year. I'm just looking up I'm on the internet now. It was 1992, and it did feel like a bolt from the blue when it came out. Mm. Uh, this is an unashamedly rock and roll band who uh, are, have got as much in common with hip-hop culture as they have with classic rock, and that is a very, very 1992 thing, isn't it? That's it for another podcast of the album years. So thank you very much from me and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye.